Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in, subscribing, and downloading. I totally appreciate it. Today's episode is brought to you by GoDaddy.com, where you can build your own domain name, your own site, or use any of GoDaddy's business tools and save 30%. Just head over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com and click on the resources tab, and then, of course, the GoDaddy icon to save 30% today. Okay, so today's podcast, I'm super excited to have Dr. Bart Dinigan on. He is a sport physical therapist from Belgium. He is currently working as a postdoctoral researcher and lecturer at the University of Hasselt in Belgium. In combination with his work as a sport physical therapist in the private physical therapy practice Motion to Balance. He finished his PhD in 2015 at KU Leuven on postural control in relation to knee and ankle injuries. Bart published numerous papers in international peer-reviewed journals over the last five years on ACL injury, chronic ankle instability, athletic screening, injury prevention, postural control, and jumping and running mechanics. And he is a well-respected speaker at both national and international conferences, workshops, and symposia. So Bart and I met a couple of months ago at the IOC World Congress in Monaco, which was awesome, and it was so great to have him on the podcast. So what do we talk about in this episode? We talk about the physiological and psychological considerations for return to sport following ACL reconstruction, how to structure treatments to promote motor learning, this stuff is awesome, the fine line of early return to sport and risk for re-injury, the integration of sport prevention training at follow-up, and much, much more. The stuff that he is doing um, in relationship to ACL and return to play is so cool. So I'm so excited that he was able to share that with all of you. It's really great stuff. And I know uh, if you work with athletes or with patients with lower extremity injuries, especially ACL injuries, this is really going to be a great podcast for you to listen to. So Thank you so much for tuning in. And again, uh, for the listeners of the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast, GoDaddy makes registering domain names fast, simple, and affordable. Find out why so many business owners choose GoDaddy to be their domain name register. So again, if you want to save 30% today, head on over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, click on resources, and then the GoDaddy icon, save 30% today. All right, so thanks so much for tuning in and enjoy this episode on ACL Rehab and Return to Sport with Dr. Bart Dinganen. Hey, Bart, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you on. Hi, Karen. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Uh, it's good to, to have you here and to share some ideas with your uh, followers of, on the podcast. Thank you. Uh, you're very welcome. And just so that people uh, get a little background on how we met. So we met in Monaco at the IOC World Congress uh, last month. And today we're going to talk about ACL injury, which is obviously a hot topic. It was certainly one of the topics in Monaco. But before we get into all of that, can you let the listeners know a little bit about more about you and your background? 
Sure. Um, so my background is a physical therapist. I'm currently working as a physical therapist as well uh, in the private clinical practice. That's one part of my job. Um, the other main job that I have currently is um, I'm working as a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Hasselt in, in Belgium, uh, where I continue my research work that I finished at a other university in Belgium, University of Leuven, where I finished my PhD in 2015, which was on postural control in relation to knee and ankle injuries. Um, well, I published numerous papers in international uh, journals over um, ACL injury, ankle instability, uh, screening, injury prevention, but also on jumping and running mechanics. That's a little bit my, my background, what I do as a researcher. Um, and my other university um, work is teaching. So I'm also teaching the university students on a bachelor level, but also on a master level um, of the physical therapy education where I mainly focused again on these musculoskeletal uh, education, musculoskeletal topics, mainly focused on the lower extremity, which is really my focus both in my research as well in my uh, clinical practice where I'm working in. And how do you feel the clinical work influences research, your research work and vice versa? Uh, for me, there's a lot of influence um, because Mostly my research ideas are coming from the clinic. So some clinical questions that I have or that other colleagues of me have in the clinical field um, or some questions that I really want to be answered. Um, so these, 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 uh, these ideas really come from the clinical practice, I think. Um, and on the other hand, my, my, my research findings can really be interpreted within a realistic setting. So I think that's also important when you have your your findings or your data to to look at them in a clinical uh, way that, that, that's i think that's both it works in both directions and for me it's like a win-win situation absolutely and would you recommend other physiotherapists to to do both so meaning not be just strictly research just yeah. strictly clinical because yeah. it's, it's a lot of work. I mean, there's no question, right? Yeah, it's not. It's absolutely not the easiest solution. Absolutely not. So a lot of people are, ask me, would you recommend? Um, first thing I would say, if you do patience, you would you have to be able to, to you really won't have to do it. So if you don't really like to do patience, I, I don't think that's the best option to do patience. But if you really like the clinical environment and if you like doing patients and like to help people and if you want to improve your your research activities in my opinion you really have to do it but if you like if, if you like a person like mm, i don't like to work with people uh, face to face i i don't like that then of course i wouldn't advise to do it right. but i think it's definitely an added value for 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 researchers who want to bring something new to 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 come up with new ideas which can be applied in clinical practice. Right, which can be applied immediately if you're treating those Absolutely. patients. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Right, so you, so you don't have to have that 17-year gap of research to clinical yeah. application. That's, can you that's, shrink that a little bit? I, that's, that's what I hope. Absolutely. If you look at it, it is really a gap. It is really a gap because often you see that research IDs 
are good, but maybe they are not really the questions that clinical uh, workers are waiting for. Mm-hmm. And, and that's also one thing that can um, yeah, bring, that, bring that gap and it doesn't really help to bridge that gap, I think. Uh, if, you, if, you continue, if you continue to really work in these uh, two separate worlds, worlds actually. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I couldn't agree more. And yeah. so let's talk a little bit about your research work. So it's, like I said, when we started, sort of focused on ACL injuries and you had a, a recent paper published in Sports Medicine which is critical review and suggestions to move forward on return to sport after ACL reconstruction. So this is a hot topic, this return to sport after ACL, right? Because one of the biggest risk factors for tearing an ACL is a previous injury to that ACL, right? Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit more more about that paper and your findings and perhaps how that can be applicable in Mm -hmm. real life in the clinic? Yeah, absolutely. So ACL, as you say, it, it, it's a real uh, hot topic, but also it's also a big problem. You know, if you look at the data um, on the outcomes after ACL reconstruction, we know that um, approximately 55% or only 55% returns to competitive sports uh, after ACL reconstruction, which is quite disappointing. But even more concerning are the, the numbers or the ratios of the ACL re injuries. So we know that one in four to one in, in five of those who have a ACL reconstruction will will get a, a new ACL injury in the future after return to sport. So that that's really a lot. Huh? Um, so in general, uh, it can be less on on an uh, on an elite level. But if you look in general, we, we have these data of one in four, one in five, sometimes even one in three in certain populations that will get a second ACL injury. If you know that this is really problematic in terms of physical activity, in terms of the risk to have osteoarthritis in the long term, it's really problematic. And that was one of the, the starting points uh, I have, and I didn't do it alone. I worked together with my colleague uh, Ali Gokelich from the University of Groningen. We had a lot of discussions about that because we, we, we both do clinical work and research work on ACL. And we were discussing, yeah, okay, we see so much around there in, 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 in research uh, emerging about return to sport. But... Of course, it's valuable what has been emerged, but we felt like maybe we should write something open and something okay, something to summarize what what has been published already, but also to try to move forward so to bring up some new ideas. And that was something we a little bit missed in in the previous literature. Um, that it was like a lot of repetition of what we've always done. But if you really want to solve something which has been there for years and it hasn't been decreasing for years uh, so we, we try to come up with with optimizations and we, we don't absolutely don't say we have to find a solution for that problem there is no gold standard absolutely but we try to come up with some optimizations and things that that persons can really apply in, in a clinical setting and so go ahead yeah. i was going to say what what would those be yeah <laughs> now so one of the things is that Traditionally, you know, when you look at return to sport, often it's, it's considered as a one-point decision. 
So you have like um, a certain point in time during your rehabilitation and someone who is deciding typically then, okay, you go or you don't go to return to sport. So that it's, it's like a yes and no, it's like a black and white uh, question at one point in time. And typically, uh, this decision has, is made by one person. So that's one thing. What we propose is that you consider return to sport as a continuum. So you start from the ACL injury, and when the ACL injury has occurred, then your process of, of return to sport and your considerations of that will start. So if ACL injury, you have, if it's possible, if you have your patients before the reconstruction, mm-hmm. yeah, we know that's very valuable. Mm-hmm. If we have these patients already before the, 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 uh, the surgery in your practice, in rehab, we have the preoperative rehabilitation. Then we have the reconstruction, which should be also um, perfectly performed, of course, to have a good solu- good uh, outcome afterwards. But then we start with a criterion-based rehab, step by step, where we do, where we propose to do um, timely evaluations of the patient in front of you, and not waiting to, for example, six or nine or twelve months to do like this is the evaluation if you. Don't jump as far now at that moment you're failing. That's a, little bit the, a big difference in our proposal compared to what has been uh, traditionally done at the end uh, in, in the previous literature. Um, so that continuum is really important, but it's not, not, not only when we evaluate our patient, it's also, it's also on what we evaluate. Um, so if you, again, look at the traditional literature, it's mainly focused on time after injury. Um, a lot of criteria to return to play or sport, how you call it, is just, and as has been shown in literature and reviews, is it's mainly about time. For example, you are six months, okay, go. You are nine months, okay, go. That's, I think we all agree that's a little bit simplistic. Um, the second thing is that when we look at criteria, these criteria are often based on the knee itself. So, for example, uh, you have the mobility of the knee, the absence of pain, swelling, laxity is, is okay of the knee. These are really knee-focused outcomes, um, which, again, can be valuable, but probably they don't tell us enough to have a big picture of that uh, patient in front of you. So... Um, the next thing that we might look at is, okay, we have that person in front of us. We, we will try to we try to broaden our, our view on that patient by not looking only at time, not looking only at the knee-focused outcomes, but um, really, as I discussed earlier in that continuum, try to um, do a rehab which is criterion-based on a broader perspective. What I mean is that... Um, when you look, for example, at the traditional tests like strength tests, mobility, etc., which, which are knee-focused, uh, we know these days that a knee doesn't function as a really isolated segment. For example, it's also very important to look at movement quality during a variety of tasks. We don't we don't evaluate just one task. That's also, in our point of view, a little bit simplistic because we we know that the athletes 
typically who are performing in multidirectional uh, dynamic sport activities, well, they have to perform a variety of tasks, and we have, we really try to prepare them to perform well during the variety of tasks over there. So um, we focus on double leg tasks, single leg tasks. Uh, we try to evaluate this with clinical friendly methodologies because 3D analysis is nice in research. But what we know now, also on my previous work, we know that we can have some valuable information also with two-dimensional video analysis, for example, uh, in single leg tasks, in double, double leg tasks, um, to try to uh, follow up our athletes during rehab, but also more at the end stage of the uh, rehabilitation and return to sport. Um, these are also these are already some important factors. That's when we do it. So in a continuum, what we do, not only looking at the knee, but try to look in a broader perspective within the body, but not only on a structural level. Also, what we know is very important is to look at psychological factors. So across different injuries, if you look at return to sport, one of the main factors uh, of return, return to sport successfully or not is uh, of our psychological factors, meaning confidence, uh, having more confidence, less anxiety, less fear of re-injury, etc. We know that these factors have really relevance to return to sport uh, after ACL re-injury. So there are also these days uh, clinical questionnaires which can be used in clinical practice. For example, the ACL return to sport after injury questionnaire, um, which has been validated in ACL reconstructed patients, and which can be used to to have an idea on okay what is what kind of psychological factors might be of relevance in this in this patient group. For my for my personal clinical background, I think to come back on the psychological factors, I think you have you have two groups. You have like those who have too much fear of re-injury, and which who are really like afraid and really like have no confidence in their knee. But on the other hand, I think there was also another group which is uh, which we sh should take into account is the group who has not enough fear. You know, I think they can handle every everything. They are like four months after evaluation they're not yet ready so I think there are, there are always two ends on a continuum and that holds true also for the psychological factors uh, absolutely yeah I think I think there's no question about that and I'm really glad that you brought up the psychological part of it because mm. as we were talking before we uh, started recording when you're dealing with these athletes it's much more than just an ACL connected to two bones that, you know, we're really looking at a full person. And in the clinic, as the treating therapist, we're treating the whole person. Yeah. You know? Whereas research-wise, as, as, and as it should be, if you're looking at biomechanical factors to a need, that's all you're looking at. But in the clinic, you have to take a much broader view. So I really appreciate I, all of that. I, I cannot agree more. So we, we don't treat a, treat a structure, we really treat a person. Uh, and, and that's so multidimensional that it's very difficult to really define one factor or one measurement who will tell us the whole story. I think that's 
something we should really take into account. The problem is so multidimensional that it's far too simplistic to, to use only one measure or only one outcome to, to say, okay, I've got the solution now, I'm going to solve this here, this, this multifactorial problem. I think that's, that, that's a big mistake sometimes made, made in literature, but also by clinicians, uh, which should take into account. But I'm also glad that you, 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 you say, okay, the ACL is, of course, a structure connecting two bones, but that's really like a mechanical perspective. Eh? And we also have the psychological factors. But uh, traditionally, as I said, we have traditional and optimized, which is also written in, in the paper. But the mechanical perspective is what we typically use. Uh, so we have the restraint of the anterior uh, translation and rotation, okay? But what we often forget, and that is really important, is that the ACL has also an important sensory function. So traditionally, the ACL injury and uh, rehab has really been considered as a mechanical problem. Okay, we, we fix the ACL, we put a new uh, graft in it, and we think with some muscle strength exercise, etc., it will be solved. But these days, we have now the data, um, both from my research, but also from others during uh, neural imaging studies of the brain, that we know that the brain is changing. Your whole sensory motor system is changing after an ACL injury. You have real like neuroplastic alterations after an ACL injury and rehabilitation. And if we just continue to, to consider the ACL as a pure mechanical problem, I think you miss so much. You miss so much of the problems which really occur uh, with, your, uh, with, with your patients. I'll give you an example. I add, this week, a patient in my practice, and he, he, he had an ACL construction. And when I was asking, when, when are your, I had some giving way, but when I was really asking, when do you feel that giving way? He was, he was telling me, okay, yesterday I, I felt it, not when I was just walking around at home, but when I did the stairs and my, my wife put out the lights and immediately I felt like my knee is going all, all over the place. You know, that's not just mechanical. No? That's, it's, it's a clear example here of a uh, situation where, in this case, the visual sh system is uh, moved away, and then that person came into problem. And that's, uh, it's a little bit black and white uh, example, but that's what the person said. And this is exactly what we found in these um, brain studies, but also in studies where we challenged the sensory motor system. We know that these persons get, rely more on visual information, they rely more, or more on uh, conscious information, and they have more an internal focus of attention during the performance of different tasks. And that's important to remind uh, to, or to know when we do real rehabilitation of these patients. Because what we typically do is telling this patient, okay, you have to contract these muscles, you, have, you need co-contraction, you need to put the, the knee straight in front of the toes, you should not go into knee value, etc., etc. These are really uh, very conscious instructions that we give to the patients with an internal focus of attention. So actually, we reinforce a process what we consider to be maladaptive in their uh, process after injury. And that's totally not in line what we recently find 
in, in, in the more neurophysiological approach of these injuries. So that's very important to, to take into account. So they're, they're very good in very conscious movements. Also, even after months of rehabilitation, you, we see that they're very good in conscious movements. But once you take away that conscious and planned movements, their, their visual system, which can be, uh, which overlying, you know, they come into problems and you see more difference between uh, non-injured and, and um, injured or previously injured person. That, that's very uh, important to take into account. Yeah, and you know, it, talking about the patients having that sort of conscious internal focus, there's one mm -hmm. thing on the video that you did, and we'll have it in the show notes, the link to that, but part of the rehabilitation, one being, you know, coming down from a, I think it was coming down from a jump, I don't know if it was a, I can't remember if it was a single leg or a double leg landing, mm -hmm. but having them kind of reach down for a cone in order to mm -hmm. get that added uh, yeah. added flexion or, you know, kind of moving the trunk a little bit more versus yeah. telling them, you know, when you land, bend your knee to X amount of degrees and bend Absolutely. from here. So instead you have them doing a task where they're not so consciously aware of where is the, where the body is perhaps moving, but that it's something that they have to focus externally on and then see how yeah. they do. Absolutely. That's, that's a good example of a difference between an internal focus of attention and an external focus of attention. My colleagues of uh, University of Groningen, on, uh, Benjamins and Ali Gokler, have done a lot of work on that. And it's really interesting to see that if you just change one or two words in your instructions, it can be totally different in terms of motor learning. So we are, I, I'm absolutely sure we have to progress a lot more on motor learning when we try to improve our patients. We don't want to, we don't want to be them excellent in our practice. We, we want to make them excellent on the field, you know, and we want, we want to transfer um, their activities towards the field. And we want also retention. So we have two things, transfer of tasks, and we, have, we want to make sure that it still remains there. So we want, we, we want, to have a motor learning effect. And as you said, the instructions that we gave, or give, sorry, to our patients are really important. Uh, so if we continue to say, this is what you have to do, this is what you don't have to do, you have to bend your knees, you have to contract your muscles, it will not work, or at least the transfer to, to its an open environment, where we're typically confronted with in sport-specific situations, um, will not be there. So and, that's, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, I was going to say, you know what I, what I think when you give all these biomechanical instructions, internal instructions, the patient will often say, well, I, I don't know what to concentrate on first here. Like if I, Absolutely. you know what I mean? So I think you're doing a disservice to that patient because you're making them focus so much internally that they can't even do what they have to do Absolutely. naturally. Absolutely. They freeze and they have the uh, decrease amount of the decrease of freedom. Absolutely, they they that's not motor learning. That's where we have to get rid of. They, we have to take into account. Okay, they have to move in open environments. So if we continue to move in really close environments, do your squat, do you this, do this, do this, where the therapist 
says everything and we don't involve the patient, I don't think that's, this will help us to really translate um, an optimal movement strategy or optimal performance uh, in the real world. And that's what, what we finally want. We have to take, take that into account. If we, if we have the goal to return to sport, and that can also be individually dependent, some people don't even want to return to, for example, basketball anymore, that's fine. But you have to discuss that with your patient. That's not the point. But if they really want to return to multidirectional sport, you have to know the sport, and you have to, do, you have to know the demands of the sport and the characteristics of the movement. So if you're on a, on a volleyball or basketball or whatever pitch it is, if you do ball sports, people have no time to be consciously, consciously aware of their knee, of their uh, hip, etc. They have to have fun and they have to move. And these aspects has to be also be there in your in your in your training. It should be fun. It should be challenging. It should not be too conscious. It should be in open environments. Um, and it should be what we call you. You should bring your patients into levels of task uncertainty when they when they don't know in advance what to do, but they have to decide what to do. And we have to try to uh, involve our patients in the rehab process. We as therapists are not the teachers uh, who have to say, you do, you do this. No, you have to try to involve a patient in the learning process. Um, and then this will also help a lot, and that is very important, in the motivational process. Um, as I said, the, the, the confidence in these is very important, but it comes a little bit together with the other aspect of motivation. Those who have a better motivation, even before the surgery, have better outcomes. So that's very important to take into account. Yeah, and I think, you know, what it sounds like is, as the clinician, that we really want to be more of the interactor with the Absolutely. patient and not the operator, right? Yeah. We're not just saying, do this, do this, do this. We want to be with them on the journey as as an interactor, not the person Absolutely. that's always in charge. Because can you imagine if you're the patient and you're waiting for the therapist to tell you what to do all the time, how are you supposed no. to then translate that over into independent play? That's absolutely. That, that's, but that's, if you look at traditional approaches, it is totally not in line with, with that. You know, if what we did traditionally is, is really telling all the time what the patient has to do with internally focused feedback, etc., And this will not uh, stimulate your central motor system enough to have really a learning effect and to come out of this maladaptive, uh, as, we, as we call it, maladaptive central motor uh, adaptations after injury. So we should take that into account going into more unconscious movement. Try to also interact with the visual system. So not only knowing what to do and focusing on one point in front of you. But for example, what we uh, often do uh, in training, certainly when we have a few patients who might work together, is like diet training, as we call it. Uh, that means that one person is doing, for example, a movement, and the other one is trying to copy him. So if, if, if two persons are running towards each other, for example, one, one is the boss, one is the follower, as I call it. Yeah. And the one person is doing, for example, a cut to the right. 
and the task of the other person might be, okay, if this person is going to the right, you have to go to the left, for example. So you, you increase the cognitive demand of the tasks. Um, the biomechanical demands are maybe the same as you did in your traditional exercises, you do a cutting, but the way you come to your movements are totally different. And that's something we try to work on uh, in our rehab as well. Yeah, that's great. And, and that is more, I think, will prepare that, that patient more for play. Because when Absolutely. they're out on the field, what they have to do is you have to be able to read the, the other person, whether they're the defender or whether they're the Absolutely. person, if we're talking about soccer, whether the defender or the person with the ball, you have to be able to read what that person is going to do and make that decision to yeah. react. So I think that's a, a, yeah. so that's the a great deci addition. Decision making, decision making is absolutely important. Huh? Um, and again, if we only look at the pure biomechanical factors and really consciously try to focus on the right movement, as we call it, um, well, that's not enough. We have, there are role, there's a role process on how we get to the, our movement and how we can adapt to new circumstances. Um, and this is a totally different approach that we that we used used to do. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And in, yeah. in addition, it really, it, in my clinical experience, it really helps to um, get more confidence. If you really come into these step-by-step -step, uh, decision-making processes, um, situations where they're really confronted with other players, with other movements and open environments, they really get the confidence. Okay, come up, uh, come on, I I can handle these situations, so I have no problem with that. So, and is this something? If you can do it step by step. Yeah, is this something that you can implement early on in the rehab process? So let's say, forget about the person who's already been through the rehab. Mm -hmm. They're pretty deep into the rehab that they are now getting back onto the field or onto the mm -hmm. court. Let's say you have someone who's just a couple of weeks out. Is this something, yeah. can you integrate this into each stage of that? Absolutely. I do it from the first day on. And you, have to, you, you apply some principles, but you do it from, the, you do it from really early on. Um, you, you don't have to, like, of course, not cutting, etc., but it can even be implemented in weight shifts. For example, um, that's what we call, and it's also published, neurocognitive training where we, um, for example, to give an easy example, you put some three lines on the floor and you, you tell the patient, okay, this is number one, this is number three, uh, two, and this is number three. You see it with your eyes open and now we do these weight shifts towards one, two, or three with your eyes closed, okay? They have to remind, this was one, this was two, this is three. Uh, in advance, they don't know if they have to go to one or two or three. Yeah? Etc. So it can be very um, simple, but you have to be a little bit uh, use your creativity, uh, let's say, to, to use it in, in, in also simple situations. So. But we know that um, this, uh, what we do is very important, also how we structure our training, the order of the exercises, etc., etc. You know, if you apply all these, these concepts, I think we can really do a lot uh, better. Uh, that we that we used to do yeah. in our rehab, yeah. and yeah. it sounds like a lot more fun too. That, that's what I want to say. If we if we don't have fun, the learning effect is also absolutely uh, uh, less. 
So what we really want to do is that they do their exercises, and if it's fun, they do it more, and you have, again, a win-win situation. And again, you stimulate more the uh, sensory motor system by having fun, by creating a good environment, a rich environment, where they can learn um, in. And that's absolutely uh, a, a total difference between, uh, okay, do your exercise, do your 15 squats, okay, now you do your 15 lunges. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's boring. And then, oh, you see the compliance of the patients are, are not good. Of course, not good because it's boring. Mm-hmm. Same is true for uh, ACL injury prevention training. It's boring. It's really boring if you do it like the traditional way. Mm-hmm. And you see, indeed, that the compliance rates are really low. Yeah. But actually, it's not not surprising. Right, right. And I yeah, and I do want to talk a little bit about screening in a second. Um, but I just want to go back, circle back to one um, of the things that you're sort of evaluating after ACL, after the surgery. So, it's and it's the time after injury. So, yeah. is there is there is there a too soon to return to sport? Right, so if someone has an ACL reconstruction, um, I don't. I'm, I'm not going to say whether it's hamstring, patellar, autograph. You know, let's not take kind of take that out of the equation. Let's just look strictly at time. Is there a time that's too early? Is three months too early? Is four months too early? What are your thoughts on that? Because that's that can that's a little controversial. You know, there are there. It's, I have seen things on social media where the physio's like, I got her back to sport in three months. Post ACL, four months post ACL. Mm-hmm. Is there a time where it's just too soon? Good question. Good question. Um, and there is also still, still a lot of discussion. But there are data now showing that even if you meet certain criteria, for example, like hop test, ninety percent, or strength difference less than ten percent difference between left and right, even if you met these criteria, it's interesting to see that those who met the criteria earlier on, for example, the same criteria at six months compared to those who get the same criteria at nine months and return later to sport. Those who return earlier to sport have an increased risk for ACL re-injury. So the, the, the increased risk for ACL re-injury is, is mainly observed in the first, let's say, two years after injury, but it's really decreasing every month after returning, uh, longer returning to sport. Um, and two recent prospective studies have shown that at least, that's the consensus now, at least it's nine months. Yeah? But again, um, there is a lot of discussion because, for example, Tim Hewitt and his co-workers has recently published also in Sports Medicine a really nice review where they argue based on uh, morphological, biomechanical, uh, structural, and sensory motor alterations after the ACL injury, you should, that's, that's what they argue for, you should wait at least two years after reconstruction. To return and that's, to sport? To return to sport, yeah. And that's a little bit in contrast with the current practices. I think two years is, of course, very long. And if you, if you, if you, say in advance to your patient, okay, you will not be able to sport for two years, I think um, then you really go back to a really a time-restricted uh, uh, criterion, let's say, 
And I don't think that's the best way to have a step-by-step -step motivational based uh, progression. And then maybe you lose some patience because, yeah, because the US, okay, I quit, I don't, I don't return, yeah. yeah? Yeah. Uh, or see you and go to another therapist. Mm -hmm. And also, yeah, it's, it's a little bit in between. But at least the stories and the stories, okay, I, I returned my patients three months. I returned my patients like, like four months. The question is not only when the, does a person return, but the, the, the most important question is how long is the person staying there? That's, that's maybe more important than when does he return. Huh? Does he stay there? At which performance level? At what kind of sports does he do or she do? Yeah, and then these questions should also be answered. Yeah? I think there's nobody has any message of returning to sport after 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 five months uh, after two months getting a re-injury. I mean, that's and you should also explain it to your patient. The first nine months and between six and nine months, we have really a increased re-injury risk. So, time is important, but time is not the only thing, of course. We want to combine that with different criteria, which can be evaluated in a quantitative way, muscle strength, hop tests, also movement quality should be included there, as, I, as we discussed, on a multi-segmental uh, level, not only looking at the knee, but also looking at the hip, the trunk, the foot, to have that kinetic chain perspective in there. Um, and of course the local knee factors which we discussed earlier mm -hmm. but these are only one of the different aspects together with the psychological findings the uh, patient reported outcome measures with for example the, uh, some questionnaire that we can use IKDC for example um, and that's a little bit what we can do these days which certainly should be improved across the next years that's what we propose in our paper also but that can be used and but then we, i want to come back to our continuum because mm -hmm. we test our patients and we discuss it what we called what we call it now uh, to make a shared decision not only one person who, who makes the decision but a lot of persons who who discuss with each other and who come to a a decision um but then the next step is the integration into sport. I think there, even if we if we have if we pass all our tests, this is something where we uh, fail a lot as therapists, as a clinical team, but also as, as trainers. You know, it's very important not to say, okay, you, you can go to sport and do everything. No, it should be gradual, and it should be a gradual reintegration into sport. And uh, these days, I think Tim Gabbard's work is, is all over the place now. I think it's really, really important to know that work, that we don't exceed uh, too much too soon our workload. And that's absolutely also uh, true when we consider return to sport. Uh, we should take into account the workload that we do. And the problem is that typically, traditionally again, we don't load our patients enough during rehabilitation. We really underload them and we don't prepare them to re return to sport. We don't, maybe we prepare them for giving some passes, yeah, with the ball, for example. Standing still. Yeah, but we don't prepare them 
for the worst case scenario. And that's where they come into in the real game situations. And not only one game, but also the next game. So for example, you one game is good, but maybe two days after they still have some, some, uh, some sore knees or still have some sore muscles, but then the next game is there. And the, the, the consequent the, 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 the sequence of, of different games after each other and trainings, which is not periodized, that's a big problem. Uh, we don't take time enough to do that really sport-specific, gradual improvement in our loading. And that's really important to yeah. avoid the rapid, rapid spikes in workload. Right. And then what happens is, you know, you have this person who's been rehabbing at X workload they have that yeah. rapid spike and then like tim gabbett said they become then the chronic rehabber so yeah. the rapid spike they have pain they have discomfort uh neuromuscularly things mm -hmm. aren't working in an optimal optimally so then they go back to rehab and now they're yeah. back at this level and and never pushed enough like you said mm -hmm. you know you it, we yeah. have to push and now we don't need that no. we need a fit athlete and not a athlete who is maybe to do some German a little bit of that and a little bit of that. No, we need a fit athlete. And if you can explain that, maybe with a figure as, as, as Tim Gabbard has, has shown, this is what you do now, but this is the level you have to be able to handle in your games, in your uh, practices. You know, then they'll also understand, okay, this is logic. I, I, have, to, I have to go there. Um, sometimes it's very practical to visualize some so, some aspects for mm -hmm. your patients mm -hmm. and to explain very simple this is what you do this is what you can do to measure it also this is what we come back to do that criterion based rehab if they know this is my measurement today and you, you make goals this is my goal for next month or next week maybe they're really motivated you set goals you set short term not only long-term goals, you, know, you don't say, okay, within seven months or within two years, you might probably go back to sport. No, you set goals on a very short term. And then the, for the patient, the rehab is so much, so much uh, shorter and more in their own hands. Yeah, they have more responsibility. We involve the patient in the process. Um, and from a motivational point of view, it, it works a lot better. Yeah, because you want to give those wins, right? You want to give a weekly win or a bi-weekly win. Absolutely. You don't want to have that win be 12 months down the road because then you're Doesn't not going work. to get the buy-in, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and those are the people, like you said earlier, who are not motivated. So can you imagine yeah. having an athlete that's not motivated? Are they ever going to get to full strength back onto the field? Yeah. You should... An athlete should always always remain an athlete. That, that, that's an important thing during rehab. An athlete wants to get, have goals. You know, they want to reach something. They want to win. And if you can reach that during your rehab, you, you really have to set goals to, to make that uh, happen. Mm -hmm. Then the motivation and the compliance for your rehab will be a lot more uh, higher. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no it's question. very important. Yeah. Yeah, no question. And and I am glad that you said the rehab doesn't end once they are cleared to play. Now, on, on that clear to play, you said there are a lot of people making the decisions. Who would be the regular decision makers on that clear to play? Yeah. And this may vary depending, obviously, on the setting and the athlete and on things like that. On the setting, like yeah, absolutely. Well, it can be 
based on the setting, you have most of the times you have a physical therapist involved. You have the uh, medical doctor often or the surgeon involved. You have the, of course, the athlete itself, which is often forgotten. It's mm -hmm. all about the athlete. The athlete is, is in the center of that group of persons. Absolutely. It's a patient-centered approach. The patient is there in the middle, but we all have then the trainer, the physical therapist, the medical doctor, uh, often the parents, don't forget them. Um, it can also be managers, can be schools, can be... The coach. The coach, yeah, the coach trainer. Um, can be a lot of people involved, depending on the setting um, where you work in. But then it's very important to have a good communication. Um, and everyone... It's also interesting that success can mean different things to different people, you know. For the trainer, successful return to sport might might be that he has to score the same amount of goals during during the game setting. Yeah? Maybe a medical doctor might, or a physical therapist, or a physical therapist or a clinician might say, "I'm happy if he don't get an injured uh, injury mm -hmm. again." Mm -hmm. That's not our opinion. Huh? So that's often the 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 uh, the fight <laughs> I don't call it a fight but you have on the one hand the clinicians and on the one hand the training conditioning coaches and the trainers who want have a performing athlete and athlete is somewhere in between yeah and but that's like you said that's where communication becomes so vital yeah. you know yeah. and communicating within the team and obviously communicating with the athlete or the patient in the yeah. center and, and making sure that the athlete is aware of all of the, the different forces that may be pulling them in, in, in various directions. And I think that's really yeah. important. Yeah, absolutely. Also, for, for, again, from a psychological perspective, if, the, if one person in the team is pushing so hard or maybe continue to say, you're not ready, you're not ready, you're, you are, you're not good enough, and your person say, yeah, you, for me, you're ready, yeah, it, it, it's an unclear situation for the athletes. Uh, it should confusing. be clear and confusing uh, because there is already a lot of confusion in these athletes. If we mm -hmm. if we continue to have that confusion in, from the beginning, uh, also in the decision making, yeah, this will not help the athletes. Um, so it's very important communication across the team. Yeah. Yeah, and and for the for the clinician, your job is not done once they're cleared to play. Absolutely. That's again right? where we come back to our continuum. Mm -hmm. the, I, I was now at the return to sport process and the integration. But as you, as you see also in the paper, there is a next step in the continuum is the follow-up. How the, the, the person is performing and how we do integrate also the secondary injury prevention training within the gradual integration and training and even if they're fully returned, we still want to do them secondary injury prevention training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Within the trainings. Within the trainings. Yeah. Right, right. So it's, it's like you said, multifactorial. There's a lot of moving parts and a lot of people involved with obviously mm -hmm. that athlete or patient in the center. So before, we've, before we wrap up here, what, what are your, if you were to sort of condense this down into some key takeaway points? What would those takeaway points be? The key point is, uh, the first key point is um, treat the patient, not the structure. Yeah, You have a patient in front of you, not a ACL who is walking in your practice. Okay, It's a patient in front of you. 
The second thing is uh, follow your patient throughout the rehab. Not only measure them once or evaluate, do one evaluation. Third thing is uh, communicate with the whole team. Yeah, we have a shared decision making uh, at the uh, across the whole process. Yeah? And then it's of course it's multifactorial. Yeah, you have to combine different factors. Uh, there is no golden standard, but it's multifactorial. Um, and again, we ha we try to have a holistic view on the patient and not a structural focused. It's only the knee. Yeah? Mm -hmm. That should be should should be very clear for for any cl clinician who is working with ACL uh, injured patient, patients. Yeah, and I think those are some great uh, key takeaway points from this discussion. And and one last question that I've been asking all of my guests is, mm -hmm. so let's say you were to, knowing what you know now, where you are in your career, what advice would you give to yourself as a new graduate physio? Oh, that's a good question, interesting question. Um, what I always say, uh, not only to myself, but also to other persons, that just follow your heart and follow what you what you really like to do. Um, if you if you really like your work, you do it with passion. Um, it doesn't feel like work, uh, and that's and you do it with a lot of fun and a lot of um, passion for your job. And then then you also think you can stimulate other persons to in your environment to contribute to your um, to your work. And so so just try to follow your what you really like to do. Because what you really like to do, you do it better, I think. Um, I couldn't agree that's important. more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I cannot agree more. Well, I, thank you so much for, for coming on. And listen, we had like so much more to talk about. So I have a feeling <laughs> we'll have to like have you come back on. We didn't even get to the screening part. We didn't oh, even get yeah, to that. Indeed. That's not a story. That's, 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 a whole, story. that's a whole other podcast. And we thought we could do all of this in one. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, we'll, have to do, we'll have to do it again. We'll do it again and we'll have a screening one. Um, okay. So where can people find you if they have questions? Uh, for sure, they can find me on uh, Twitter. I think that's the most uh, open resource, resource to, to find uh, people. So my Twitter is just actually my name, at uh, Bart Dingenen. Uh, I'm, I'm speaking Dutch, so that's what Dutch. <laughs> how, that, that's how, how you pronounce my name. Yeah. <coughs> so um, there you can find me for sure. You can also find me on ResearchGate, where you can find uh, all my papers, I think, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, in full text. Uh, you can also send me a mail, but I think the resource will be available also by this yeah. podcast. Um, yep, yep, yeah, we'll so have everything in the show notes. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, for sure. If there would be any questions, uh, feel free to to contact me. I'll be happy to answer your questions. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was great. I was taking copious notes myself. So thanks so much, Bart, for coming on. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. And, and everybody, thank you so much for tuning in and listening today. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.